Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. The year is 2010. And if you're waiting for your life to start, have it hold for just a few more minutes. The movie Inception. From... everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear, and this is the show where we are endeavoring to make a list of the 100 best movies ever made from around the world. We started off uh, on the AFI Top 100 US Films and we took that 100 list, we got it down to 40, and now we are going in our second season through different genres and exploring films that maybe deserve to be on the list, genres that are underrepresented. And right now we are exploring the summer blockbuster. Uh, Last week, we talked about Bridesmaids, and it was really interesting to see the reaction to it. I will say that based on a lot of the conversation I saw on the Discord, which you can always join at discord.gg slash Paul Shear, um, under the unspooled category, there's a lot of people who are like, I never really liked this movie. I liked Hangover a lot more. And then people rewatched it uh, after we talked about it and then kind of um, appreciated it a little bit more. I think there was a stink on this movie to some people that it was, or people remember it like a... Uh, a female hangover, which is such a terrible way. It's There's nothing similar about those movies um, besides their ensemble comedies. Um, but it was interesting to see because I thought for sure Hangover might be the movie that people might be like, oh, wow, I'm looking at it in a different way. Um, and Bridesmaids was the one that's a little bit more beloved. And I feel like people really came to appreciate Bridesmaids a little bit more. I don't know what you found so far. I mean, if there is a common thing I found, it's that the very scenes that it appears that uh, Judd Apatow and Paul Feig forced the film to add, basically all of the shitting in the sink, et cetera, in order to sell tickets to the movie have become the main thing people remember from the movie. And in rewatching it, they're so glad that that wasn't exactly the movie. Somehow those scenes that they added maybe helped sell tickets. But I think in the time of, in the grand sweep of history, 
have erased the original idea of what that movie was from people's heads. That's what happened to me for sure. And then I was like, oh, right. This is a really powerfully emotionally driven comedy. And it is not the movie where a bunch of girls shit in the sink. That happens, but that is not the sum total of what this movie is. This movie is so much, much more. And I'm glad to remember that it is. Absolutely. Um, And now, Amy, I do, uh, there's so much to talk about, but I think that we just have to just briefly address uh, the death of two uh, very big influential uh, film and television actors. You could probably speak more to uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo, uh, who passed away, uh, the actor from Breathless. He was uh, 88 this week. Uh, do you have any any connection to him besides being uh, just a, a staple of uh, French cinema? Uh, well, the nearest connection I had is uh, about 11 years ago, the L.A. film critics gave Belmondo a Lifetime Achievement Award. And we mm. he, he agreed to fly to L.A. from France. And just seeing that man in the center of, you know, a, a banquet hall, I've never seen a group of critics lose their minds with such just complete giddiness. Um, my boyfriend at the time, I think that is the greatest thing I've ever done for him is I took him to meet uh-huh. Jean-Paul Belmondo. He almost died of of bliss. And, you know, that he came and let us fet him for an evening was really lovely. And I, I think we should definitely do a Belmondo film. I mean, there's there's a world Love of to Belmondo to appreciate. Yeah. And I also want to just shout out, uh, you know, Michael K. Williams, who mm-hmm. probably is most known uh, from his roles in The Wire and Boardwalk Empire. And he was just recently on uh, Lovecraft County. Uh, but just a phenomenal actor who I actually had a chance to work with uh, twice and was just uh, one of those like very rare uh, performers who, you know, in my in my time, he was a person who I felt like I was always excited to see what he did, and he seemed incredibly versatile, and he was always showing up in interesting roles, and I think fought very hard to not just be Omar Little, like which was such a iconic role, uh, and and show off different sides of his personality. He was incredibly funny. He was on Human Giant. And there's a great uh, thing that Rosario Dawson posted this week. You can go back to her Instagram page and watch it, where he actually acts with four versions of himself, talking about what it is like to be a black actor working. And when you are a black actor who looks the way that he looks, the roles that he can get, and it's four versions of him. There's Omar talking to Michael K. Williams, talking to, uh, you know, Michael K. Williams kind of in uh, in loungewear, like getting out of bed. Like there's, it's a very, I think it's actually really beautifully done piece uh, just about how you can be typecast and how, you know, there's something to be thankful for that, but there's also something to be very it's hard to work against. And he's somebody who I always felt did something very interesting. And, uh, you know, uh, whether he popped up in things like Inherent Vice or Django or, you know, Robocop, uh, I always was excited to see him. Yeah. I mean, th- there's a critic who writes for The New Yorker, Doreen St. Felix, who's just absolutely brilliant. I think one of the brilliant writers of today. And she compared the loss of him to the loss of losing somebody like a Philip Seymour Hoffman, a loss that yeah. I think there's I think there's still an empty place in movies for Philip Seymour Hoffman and Heath Ledger. And she ascends him to that those ranks. And I think that's true. But I think he also there's more films from him we didn't get. I feel even more yeah. that we didn't get to make enough use of him as he's here. I and so totally I think the loss agree. hits doubly hard. Absolutely. Um, well, let's. Uh, 
let's go deeper. Let's like, we're in this time of reflection. And I think, uh, you know, it's time for us to spool The year is 2010. The financial crisis continues in the States with high unemployment and an unprecedented number of housing foreclosures. SpaceX successfully launches its Dragon capsule, the first privately created spacecraft to return to low Earth orbit, putting the company closer to its goal of creating commercially viable space travel. Apple releases the iPad, taking touchscreen technology to new heights. Instagram launches and gains 1 million users in just two months and over 90,000 internal reports regarding the U.S. involvement in the war in Afghanistan, and over a quarter of a million diplomatic cables are published to WikiLeaks. It's a big year, and the popular movies are movies that we've never talked about on the show, and, and maybe movies that we never will. Uh, Toy Story 3, Alice in Wonderland, I'm talking about the Johnny Depp version, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, Part 1, and today's film, Inception. Uh, Amy, who's in it? Who made it? Can you explain it? <laughs> that was one of our challenges on an, uh, an early episode of Screen Test. Do you remember? Yes, I do. <laughs> well, let me give it a shot. Um, Inception. It is written and directed by the one and only Christopher Nolan. In fact, I would say that Inception is the film that made Christopher Nolan a brand unto himself. Not just the guy who made two, three, two and a half good Batman movies and some great indie films, but the Christopher Nolan, the hundred million gazillion, almost billion dollar man. Um, Inception follows the exploits of a man named Dom Cobb. And Dom Cobb is played by Leonardo DiCaprio. He's Dom? Hold Dom on one sec. Cobb. I've never realized his name was Dom Cobb. It seems like the names in this movie are so well thought out, but Dom Cobb is... <laughs> oh, thank you for making fun of Dom Cobb, because I actually thought... Maybe I should challenge you to say Dom Cobb five times fast. No, they never call him Dom. They only call him Cobb. Dom Cobb. Oh, Dude. man. Okay, that's once. Can Dom you say Cobb, it? Dom Cobb, Dom Cobb, Dom Cobb. It's terrible. <laughs> I can't say it. It doesn't roll off the tongue. No wonder this guy is uh, addicted to sleeping. He wants to be asleep so no one can call his name in real life. <laughs> Imagine going around. I'm Dom Cobb. Can I have a, can I have a bank loan? It does put me a little bit closer to my theory that Christopher Nolan, while a genius, has some interesting disconnects from uh, human nature. Uh, like there's a line in Tenet, uh, Joe Mandy brought it up to me, where uh, uh, where one of the characters is like, I ordered my hot sauce an hour ago. It's like, who orders hot sauce from a restaurant? It's like, it's it's. It's kind of just slightly skewed. It's like when you have a uh, vertigo, like it, you're just slightly off balance. Dom Cobb uh, fits into <laughs> who who took my hot sauce. Anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you because you're about to break down a movie that is uh, very complex to break down. <laughs> no, but I can see you are really uh, chomping at the cob to talk about this movie. <laughs> I am. I am. Get those cobs. Get them cobs. Well, anyways, Dom Cobb, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, he's a dream thief who leads a high squad of Elliot Page, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Tom Hardy into the mind of a billionaire's son to implant an idea, not steal an idea, his usual thing, but to implant an idea four levels deep into the rich kid's psyche. Now, if Dom Cobb can pull this off, he can be legally reunited with his kids who he has not seen since his dead wife framed him for her own 
murder, suicide. But because Dom Cobb's uh, subconscious, <laughs> Dom Cobb's subconscious feels guilty. You got to stop saying Dom Cobb. You got to just call him. Oh, Dom man. Cobb. You never. are setting yourself but up. If you want to get inside my brain and make me not say Dom Cobb, good luck. All right. Uh, but because Dom Cobb's subconscious feels guilty, his uh, memories of his dead wife, played by Marianne Cotillard, haunt him as he goes into the dream world and they threaten to destroy everything because he is feeling self-destructive. You got all that? I'm here. I'm there. <laughs> all right. Take a listen. What do you want from us? Inception. Is it possible? Of course not. If you can steal an idea from someone's mind, why can't you plant one there instead? Okay, here's me planting an idea in your head. I say to you, don't think about elephants. What are you thinking about? Elephants. Right, but it's not your idea because you know I gave it to you. The subject's mind can always trace the genesis of the idea. True inspiration's impossible to fake. It's not true. Can you do it? Are you offering me a choice? Because I can find my own way to square things with Cole. Then you do have a choice. And I choose to leave, sir. Inception was released July 13th, 2010, and it was made a massive, massive hit by audiences who wanted something cerebral at the height of center, at summer. I mean, we're talking like $837 million around the globe. That is crazy. Uh, of course, the audience's hunger to feel smart did not extend to the pop charts that weekend because the number one song is giddily stupid. It is California Girls by Katy Perry, making another mm. return to our list. Um, I will say at least the album's title is Inception-esque, Teenage Dream. I mean, what do you think Ooh. like a teenager's dream inception would be? Is it just like going inside uh, haunted memories of being like naked in AP bio? Well, I was going to say it depends on who's infiltrating. I mean, if yeah. you are, you know, a teenage girl with uh, a crush or I would say a teenager with a crush on a, a boy or a girl, maybe you want to go inside their dream and figure out if they have a crush on you. You know, there's a lot of things you can do. I mean, you know, Check I mean, this box. Do you like me? Yeah. yeah. Well, with that in mind, I, uh, listen to a little bit of California Girls and imagine it's a deep song. The clip that I pulled is about waves on the beach traveling anywhere you want. Motifs that I think do show up in Inception. What an interesting song, because I think what we're talking about with this film is a blending of something very, very complicated in a package that is incredibly familiar. Um, and I think that's one of the most interesting things about this film. I would say that this is peak Nolan. Like, take the Batman out of the equation, right? And I'm looking more at the... Uh, the original Nolan verse. These are the ideas that he has made that don't connect to anything, uh, any other IP. And this seems to be the sweetest spot that he has. It it has a heist caper at the center. The casting is phenomenal. The ideas are big but comprehensible. And I think it does uh, 
It's one of those movies that is complex yet dumb enough to make you feel smart for having watched it, but not dumb for not understanding it, if that makes sense. Like, there are certain things in this movie that are vague. There are certain things in this movie that don't make full sense. But I feel like if we look at the spectrum of Nolan, uh, and let's maybe just put Tenet here at the end, I think Tenet represents kind of the most Nolan that you can get where it's like everything is almost too complex. It's everything is folded on top of each other. And, and while the ideas are good, it almost feels uh, like you're trying to just pull your, your shoe out of like a, like a quicksand. It just, it's like, I'm, I'm in it, but I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not enjoying this where this is uh this is a little bit more like whitewater rafting. It's thrilling. It's fun. Uh, but you can manage it. Does that make sense? <laughs> well, it does. It does. And I think it's easier to see Inception now through Nolan's touchstones, now that we see that he's continued to chew on so many of the same ideas that he mm-hmm. has in here. Like, when you think of a Nolan film right now, like, I would say his signature is being a guy who thinks about time, right? Yes. Like, that this is a movie about, like, nesting time where things take place at different times. That's an idea he chews on again in Interstellar. It's a, an idea that's, like, the whole framework of Dunkirk. You know, um, and it's an idea that he's, like, still kind of, like, hammering with in different ways, even on things like Memento and up to Tenet. Like, everything is about, you know, the passage of moments. You know, like, you buy... I guess like you buy a ticket to the space that is Nolan, the two and a half hour space that is Nolan. And in that time chunk, he will talk to you about the passage of time, which I guess makes him feel he he makes me feel a little bit like a teenage dream. Because when I watch his movies, I think about a kid who's a teenager sitting in his bedroom thinking about these things and keeping himself up at night and being unable to get to sleep because he's worried about the passage of time in his own life. And then just continuing to make movies about it until forever. No, and I think what we're getting in a weird way, is a Nolan that does one for him, which is an obsession of time and space and love and loss and regret. Because I think you can say that that is Interstellar, that is Tenant, that is Inception, that is Memento. And then between these, you have, you know, uh, like the Prestige, which is not obsessed with time, but does deal with a lot of different themes. And the Batman trilogy, I think, deals with like, how long, you know, the the famous kind of phrase, which I'll muck up, but like, you know, how long can you be the hero until you become the villain? That like that idea of, you know, when is your time up? But I, I do think it, it seems like every other movie goes back to a different exploration of this idea of like how much time, what have we done and how are we using it in a way? And how are we using, how can we manipulate time to give us something that we don't have? Yeah, no, exactly. Like, there's this book on Nolan that my mother gave me for Christmas this year. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And um, when I was reading it, like, it was talking about how Nolan was in college. He was going to a school that was, like, pricier than, like, mm-hmm. his family history had been. You know, so he was very money conscious while he was there, that he was around a bunch of rich kids. And he was also a night owl. And there was a thing that happened at his school where, like, they had breakfast every day at 9 o'clock, and you had to pay for breakfast ahead of time. It was, like, that kind of school where, like, you're in the dorms, you have to pay right. for breakfast. It was, like, a meal that he had already paid for without having any say in the matter. So because he was so money conscious, he would stay up until the middle of the night 
and then basically just keep staying up until breakfast so that he would eat his breakfast because he had already paid for it. Like it was like a point of pride. You won't take my breakfast away from me. And then he would go back to sleep and have really weird dreams because his sleeping schedule was so insane. And so he was this guy who kind of, I think, you know, they talk about him pitching Inception to Warner Brothers like in 2002, but it's an idea that had been with him since like the, I don't know, late 80s, early 90s when he was a teenager because it was something he just kept thinking about. He was he was practicing lucid dreaming even when he was in college because he was like only half asleep even when he was asleep because he really needed to get like free what do you eat for breakfast in England? Like beans and toast. So he was like getting his free yeah. beans and toast and then like having lucid dreams about beans and toast and being, you know, I, I, what I appreciate about the, yeah, because he's gassy. And cause like what I appreciate about an anecdote like that is because it, it speaks to the idea that like in your boredom and most bizarre depressive states is where creativity can come. You know, I, I, I want to just maybe tackle something about Nolan right at the top. And I think it's a larger conversation. And, you know, a lot of people have gone back to the conversation that you and I have had about Spielberg. You brought up this idea, like if you got rid of Spielberg, would there be, you know, this influx of these bigger movies. And I, and I, I know that I kind of just moved off that topic very quickly when we were talking about it um, because I think it is such a massive topic. And I would love to actually maybe even do a special episode where we kind of break into a world without Spielberg. But what I think about Nolan sometimes in the same way is I think Nolan, conversations around Nolan can be incredibly reductive. Um, that... You know, he does things for the sake of being confusing or, you know, there's like a whole Reddit and not that Reddit is like the end all be all of social commentary. But like, why is Christopher Nolan a bad director? Like what? You know, like I, I think that what I really like about Christopher Nolan and I think as this conversation goes on, I love a director like Christopher Nolan. I think there's a, a very close parallel you can make to Stanley Kubrick in the sense that he makes incredibly original films that he wants to make with seemingly very limited uh, interference from the studio. And I think movies on this scale with that kind of freedom is incredibly rare because these are big, heady movies. And whether or not you love the outcome of all of them, I'm just thrilled that he is making these movies. And I think his, his kind of perfect uh, nature is, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but I will say is I think he's part Kubrick and I think he's part Spielberg because all of his movies do capture something that is uh, intensely uh, personal and reflective, but also have these elements that are pure blockbuster, that are trailer worthy, that are exciting and embracing spectacle and big budget. Like, would you agree with that? Well, Yeah, I mean, there's a lot in there that I'm like wrestling with because you're right. Like on paper, Nolan is exactly the kind of director that I always want to champion. You know, somebody who breaks through like being trapped in franchises, somebody who's like full of original ideas, somebody who really sticks up for like the theatrical experience, even when I kind of wanted to kill him for that as he was trying to release Tenet in the summer. But then what did I do? I rented out a theater and I saw Tenet alone with my boyfriend and like nine boxes of Twizzlers. Like, fine. I actually treasure that memory now. Thank you. And I'm so happy you had Twizzlers instead of Red Vines. (laughs) Always, always. We will always have this. I appreciate this in our relationship. But I have bristled towards Nolan. I bristled against him a lot. And 
today as I was getting ready for this episode, I wanted, I was trying to wrestle with that idea. Like, why do I have this knee jerk, like Nolan experience towards his films? Because I don't even know how deeply I mean it, mean it when I think about it. Like the Inception is a movie that I saw twice opening week. Like I saw it as a critic and then I immediately bought like IMAX tickets and I went to see it that weekend with friends. And yet I find myself imagining that I'm very like allergic to him in the same way that I get allergic to like certain Kubrick films, Ridley Scott films, like Denis Villeneuve films, Mm. that they have the same kind of quality to them that drives me a little bit nuts. They have the same kind of cults around them that drive me nuts. And it makes me be knee jerk. But I want to try to when I when I rewatched this film, I was like thinking consciously, don't be knee jerk about like these inhumanist filmmakers. I mean, they're like kind of inhumanist filmmakers to me, like people who make movies about people, but they don't really feel like they're about people. Um, they feel like they're about ideas more than people. Well, and if it's, yeah. if, but, what I'm, but what I'm getting to is like, if this is who they are and these are the type of films they make, how can I get to a place where I respect them without just only knee-jerk being like, oh, they're not that great. Can we get over this? Like, how can I find what's in them that I like? Like, I actually, I've seen Dune, the new Denny Villeneuve. Oh, film. wow. It's fantastic. And I tried to watch it with that same framework. Like, I will watch a film where people don't speak like human beings and I will embrace it for that and get into the rhythm of that. You know, I feel like yeah. these are films where well, the things that I treasure are not in them. So I have to figure out what else in them I can like. Well, there's something very interesting. And again, I'm, I'm going to refer to this as being like the peak Nolan. And I know many people might say like, old oh, Dunkirk is the best Nolan film, or maybe the second of the Batman trilogy is the best Nolan film. But this is a film that seems intensely personal. And I feel incredibly connected to the characters here. I think Dunkirk has an interesting engine to it. And again, I don't want to like spend a lot of time breaking down other Nolan work uh, because I, A, am not incredibly familiar with it. I'd have to really refresh myself. But I would say that Dunkirk is built under this idea of war. And I think war can create an immediacy and an emotional connection to characters because you're in this moment with them, right? You're in this like heightened state. And I do think that the characters in this film probably do the best he's done with getting to the human emotion, which what I was joking about in the beginning, Dom Cobb and, and, and my hot sauce, I feel like you're right. Like somebody who is this visual, someone who has this big ideas, they don't always seem fully connected to their emotional selves. Like they are, they're more connected to ideas about what we think about, like where our head is at, but not where our heart is at, if that makes sense. Even though this movie is about heart and, and Dom Cobb uh, definitely is is heartbroken. I would say Matthew McConaughey's performance in Interstellar has that kind of similar vibe. But uh, but this is all the, I think a lot of the characters here pop. Whereas in other films, it's focused maybe on one or two characters. It's like a big ensemble where I think all the characters really work. I mean, yes. Like, I think that that is sometimes where I get really tripped up in like a Nolan or a Ridley Scott film is when they insert things that are emotional that I don't believe. Right. That they really feel like they really want to talk about. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. it's like, oh, it has to have a love story or it has to have a father and a daughter or whatever. And they put this in and I'm like, oh, you don't really want to talk about this. Like, you're more interested in the mechanics of this film. So or when you, you feel don't like know how to. Yeah. You know, it's like, don't you have like a relative? I'm sorry. I'm just like, don't you ever have a relative like that 
and maybe I, I'm unique to this, but that doesn't know how to hug you the right way or doesn't like know how to how to show you that they love you in a physical way. Like, you know, and it could be, you know, there are just people who are awkward physically. And I feel like there's an element of that in this. It's like, yes, I want to hug you, but I'm not good at hugging you. But I know that that's something I want. Like that's that's sometimes how I feel he grapples with these things. It's like. You're right. Like, I don't think anyone's forcing him to tell the story of a father and daughter or a husband and a wife. I, but I just don't know if he has fully, if he's emotionally involved to understand how to get to it in a deeper, more real way. No, you're right. And I, I feel so crazy and condescending, you know, accusing him of this. I mean, this is a man who's like a grown man who married like his, you know, wife when he met he met her like they were teenagers when they met mm-hmm. they actually met at the architecture school in this film where you see like where you see dom Cobb show up uh. that's where he and emma thomas his wife who also helps him produce a lot of like his films um they met there they're in love they have four kids like he's built a whole like romantic life and i feel awful that me like girl who you know d- is not married like is like you don't know anything about love like what gives me the right to accuse him of that and I want to try to undo that thinking in my brain and try to see what he is saying when he says love, kind of like what you're talking about, like translate what a person's, how a person expresses love into their own language. Like, can I accept Nolan on his own terms or do I think he's being a phony? And it's less fun to think he's a phony. I would like to try to engage with his emotions sincerely. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. Sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Well, let me say this. I've never been a fan of Inception. I understood why this movie was received the way it was. But when I saw it in the theater, I was like, well, that's really cool. And that was it. Like, I I appreciated it, but I was not like, this is amazing. I was like, I got it. But I didn't, like, get it. And the conversation around this movie is incredibly positive. It's a huge blockbuster. It's an adult film. And I will say that in rewatching it, and last night was the first time I'd rewatched it since I saw it in the theater. I may have seen clips here and there. Um, I like had a completely different reaction to it. I was truly blown away and I leaned in. And I don't know if it's one of those things that we've talked about on the show in the past where like, I wasn't ready for this film when I saw it the first time. Um, obviously, America was because it was a huge, huge hit. I mean, it also has giant stars in it. And I think you could walk out thinking it's cool. Um, but this movie, I think, aged incredibly well. 
No, I absolutely agree. I feel like 11 summers later, it means even more to me that this film is like an yeah. original idea. It it means more in just 11 years, like the passage of time. Oh, time. It's like passing by <laughs> and changing things. But it does matter to me. It, and I think part of the issue that, you know, I had with this film, it's interesting. This film went through kind of like a critical wave reception where like the first wave of reviews of Inception uh, Warner Brothers did that thing where the most of the people they invited to see it at first were like internet bloggers right. who like gave it a hundred percent fresh. So it opened with a hundred percent fresh. And then like, you know, the print people moved in New York times, et cetera. And they all downgraded the film and the film has steadily gone lower and lower in people's imagination. Like I think for a while, the top critic rating of it was like in the seventies um, because there are elements about it that I think drive people nuts because there are elements about the conversation around this film that I think make it hard to see the film itself. You know, that this is a film that I think comes in saying like, are you smart enough to handle me? And you get kind of irritated. Like I, I find myself irritated by films where like everything is named after like something from Greek literature. Where mm -hmm. I'm like, how much do you want me to like look up and research? Like, can't you just put your brains that you have in the film in the film? Do you have to have like end notes to the movie for me to go look up and like well, realize everything that you're talking about? And like, I mean, like the rival company is named after some philosopher who like believed in the oneness of the universe. And it's like, do I have to look that up or can you just talk about it in the movie? Like, does everything have to be an illusion? And the word that I kept coming back to is I, I like films that are intelligent, but sometimes I don't think I like films that are clever, that are like, I am a clever film. And Nolan or the talk around a Nolan film, I think pats itself on the back for being clever more than deep. Well, and I guess what I came to last night, and I want to look back when I rewatch his films and think about his films like this. I think where Nolan films fall apart is because they present as so smart that when they don't make that much sense, people get frustrated with them in the sense that, wait, well, how does that work? And why is it like that? And like, I think what he is trying to do, like most big budget films, is say, just like buy into this idea, buy into it. Just because I'm making a smart movie doesn't mean that I have to have, like no one says, well, wait, how does the flux capacitor work? Like Doc Brown says, I fell off a toilet and this image came to me and it allows me to travel through time. No one goes, well, wait, but what is, what, what is that? Like, it's a why yeah. you or drew a why. Like what we were talking about too, with the backstory in Jurassic Park. That's like, yeah. hi, I'm a film strip. And this movie is being all, all exposition. Right. Really reverses the things we are complimenting about that. But it seems like it's doing it so deliberately. Is there a point where you have to accept that I want to be an exposition film? Well, but I also feel like this movie is is a heist film. Pure and simple. Is a, This is Ocean's Eleven. This is, um, but the Vegas Casino is the human mind. And they need to set... And they need to set down... I say it said... Uh, and they have to set down some ground rules so you understand exactly what's going on because certain things are going to come into play. So where you might hear in Ocean's Eleven, okay, we have to go in here and then the money drop is at eight. Like those are all things that we understand in our real world. Like, okay, that's when the, the shift manager gets off. That's what goes on here. He's delving into something a little bit deeper. But I believe at the end of the day, 
Who cares about the heist? Like, the, the premise is, what if you could go into someone's mind and steal their ideas or implant them with an idea? And then we have to buy into that. We can't, like, overly question it. The logic is there enough And then we have to enjoy the ride. And I think where people have this reaction to Nolan is, well, it doesn't make enough sense. Like, clearly, and and then there's an irritation there, and there's a rubbing the wrong way. Because ultimately, if you watch this movie, it makes sense. I'm not going to question, like, well, what are they putting in their hands? Like, what is that thing? And why do they have to hit the button? And how did they get that stewardess to be a part of this? And is she hired by Dom Cobb? Like, you know, there's a lot of technology and and people want to know these things. They want to know what does that button do to make people go to sleep? Who cares? Who gives a fuck? Um, Because truthfully, that's not what the movie is about. The movie isn't about the technology. The movie is about this really cool idea and let's just get into it. And then we have the rules and the parameters, all which you say that they're exposition, but it's all exposition that comes into play in the heist without that without knowing that it's sort of like, you know, in Ghostbusters, when um, they have the first battle with uh, Slimer, you know, Harold Ramis stops him and goes, oh, just so you guys know, we can never cross the streams. Well, why? Well, if we cross the streams, it's bad. You know, OK, well, like, you know, like uh, we'll stop all life on Earth bad. And that's, you know, clearly just one moment of exposition. But they explain how the traps work and the Twinkie and they, throughout the whole movie. They do it. So at the end, when you're in that third act. You understand, okay, when they cross the streams, that's a big deal. They may be ending life on Earth. This is why the ghosts are reacting in a certain way. This is how they put them in the trap. Like, there are, you have to, whenever you're doing a fantastical idea, give yourselves some groundwork because it is going to come to play out, like, to be part of the reveal. But I think that sometimes people get frustrated with, I don't know, how real it is, but it's 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 science fiction. Who cares? Yeah, I mean, like, in early interviews of this, like, Leonardo DiCaprio was talking about how these dreams had to be dreams that Nolan had worked out with a really clear set of logic. When you talk about dreams, you immediately start to think that the um, that world is infinite, that anything is possible. What was interesting about Chris's take on this dream world and what he was very specific with us about is that it had its own set of rules that um, you immediately start to talk about the human subconscious and entering the dream world and you think, you know, we could be flying around in other galaxies with mystical creatures and, you know, insane settings. But he wanted it to be very deeply rooted in things we understood. And yes, like hearing Leo kind of, you know, tease the idea of a dreamscape that's like less inception and more, I don't know, what dreams may come. Did you ever yeah. see that movie? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Would, would also be fun. But yeah, this isn't that movie. This is something kind of like crisper and colder. And to your point about like, what is this like heist? What is this mission? What is it there for? You know, there's something I think really curiously apolitical about it, because like, really, what is this heist? Like one billionaire wants to destroy another billionaire's company. Like Saito wants to destroy Cillian Murphy's dad's energy company. Well, he wants to make, in a way, it's kind of a heroic thing that they're doing. Like they're stopping Someone from becoming a monopoly. That's like, that's like Pepsi paid me to stop Coca-Cola from being a monopoly. Like, do you care? Of course. I mean, it's, yes. Do you care what side you're on? Like, and that that there's like a third competitor, which I guess is like Mountain Dew, who's like the people who are setting up Saito in the first part of the film. Right. And so it's like three companies like duking it out over energy. 
I don't know if they're like oil companies or coal companies. It doesn't right. really matter. But what's fascinating about it is like, I think just this premise, this basic premise, who knows if they're even on the right side? Like Saito well, they're not a terrible person. Like right. Saito's company could be like slashing down the Amazon. We have no idea. But they're thieves. They are thieves. Yeah. Like they, yeah. and they're, and they're, and there's no moral compass and the moral compass doesn't come into play at all in at this movie. All. And I find that really striking because part of me is like, do we want to know if they're doing the right thing? And then part of me is like, yeah, fuck it. You well, know? well to me, you know what I, when I was watching this, the thing I couldn't get out of my head, and I felt very smart when I had this thought, and then I Googled it, and I saw that many people had this thought as well, is that this is a story about addiction, truly a story about addiction. And when I was looking at it, I was like, oh, this now, like watching it through that lens became incredibly uh, more fulfilling for me, like to watch how... When you're working with somebody who is brilliant, but you see that they are bringing you down. Like, I think we've all have experiences in one way or another. You've, you watch, you watch someone spiral. And for whatever reason, if it's grief, if it's addiction, if it's self-sabotage and how that starts to affect the group. So if we really take away everything, we're looking at Leo, who is a drug addict and the drug that he is addicted to is sleep. And we can even take away all of that and just say he is an addict. And because he's an addict, he is uh, an unsafe part of this team. And Elliot Page catches the addict. And, and that's like a lot of the tension of this is like, do I tell, do I not? And I think that that to me was such a compelling um, dramatic thrust of the film that I really like all the other stuff is so fun to watch and it's, you know, magical and big and, and beautiful. But that to me really started to like resonate on this watch. And it made me truly look at DiCaprio's performance and go like, this is a really underrated performance. He's doing some really good work here. And I don't think that people are recognizing how good his performance in this is. Well, yeah, that an addict has set up circumstances where every single person on his team is at risk of going insane in limbo. Mm -hmm. And what I think is so smartly constructed about the heist is that it's the second they go into just level one, the like rainy California level of the heist, immediately, as soon as they show up, it just goes completely haywire. Like, it's not like right. everything's sort of fine. They show up, there's immediately a bunch of people shooting them with machine guns and a giant train going and, through Los Angeles. And, and rain. So, yeah, I mean, so it rained just because one guy forgot to pee. Yeah. And so there's no like there's no build up to the disaster. The heist right. from the first second becomes about the fact that Leonardo DiCaprio has put them in a position of a disaster. And I love that it, the, the rain in Los Angeles. I was reading a story about the cinematography of it that, I mean, A, the idea of having an L.A. that's raining is kind of insane when you live here. You're like, right. we don't really rain. But that the cinematographer was having a really hard time shooting around the fact that it was still sunny, even though they were adding a lot of fake rain. And Nolan was like, you know, that's kind of great. Like, it makes the rain seem even more surreal that you keep seeing kind of bits of sun yeah. past the sky that we're not covering up. Because he was trying not to do it all digitally. He was trying to do it practically. And in doing that, you make it even weirder. Yeah, it becomes this. I mean, every section of this film 
is unique. Like where, like what is this base station, this Arctic base station that they go to? Like, you know, they all have dreamlike elements. You know, they're existing in our world, but they are the way that we all dream. You know, it actually made me think like, I don't know if I remember my dreams as much lately and, and the power of having that and, and existing and, and, and just, I think I've been getting bad sleep lately, yeah. uh, which is rare for me. Like I, I can go to sleep You're not very easily. Kim Kardashian nine and a half hours. Oh my God. I wish I was. Um, and you know, and it's this idea of like really getting lost in those things that feel real. Like, like, like they explain all of this in the film. Like, you know, you know, a dream feels real until you wake up and realize it wasn't. So I love yeah. that, like that they were able to follow it, but like that base station in the Arctic, like, what is that? Who knows? That does, that's nothing. But yet if you saw that in a dream, it like, Oh, you would try to explain that. Yeah. There was like this fort and it was in the, you know, it was in the snow. And, you know, I know that that was very heavily influenced by like on her majesty's secret service, but it's just, this is like a playground in many respects for Christopher Nolan to make cool shit. Like he gets to just be like, what, what can I do? Because everything is okay in this dream state. And I think that that like each one is so beautifully and cleanly defined, like the architect, like Elliot Page designs each one of these things. And they're so different and you need them to be so different because we're going between reality, three levels of dream and then limbo. And limbo is a whole kind of, uh, cluster of of ideas and images and stuff like that so it's yeah it yeah it, it just it visually it's incredibly stunning and a I mean, great way to dictate like where you are and what what's going on well you know what it is i mean because it's it's color-coded right mm-hmm. you're like okay we're white we're in this level we're more gray we're in this level mm-hmm. we're more amber hotel color we're in this level and you need that immediate distinction when it starts like kind of cutting closer and closer to the climax, when you're kind of jumping back and forth between all the levels at once. I mean, what that is, it's 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 straight up intolerance. Inception mm. is like 2010 intolerance. Well, you know what you remember I was intolerance, I, like we saw for people yeah. who haven't seen intolerance. We did an episode on it back in the day. It's like a 1916 film by D.W. Griffith. That's about four different timelines. They never intersect they're all they're all very separate in time but at the end they're building towards like a similar climax at the same time and you can tell that you're cutting for it back and forth between like you know 1916 urban life and babylonia and jerusalem and like the french revolution because of the color coding and it's like these two films i think exist really interestingly in tandem that you know a hundred or i guess 94 years later this is the modern day version of it can i throw one more in there yeah um, I would throw in Star Wars. And really? Yeah, and because Star Wars, the third act of every Star Wars film is competing like almost four sequences always competing. Like, all right, so here it's the Death Star trench battle, and you're in you're in the TIE Fighter. You're also, you know, um you're you're basically cutting back and forth between a bunch of different things. I think like, you know, whether it's Return of the Jedi, like they're on the planet, they're in the sky, like you're following all these stories. And I feel like Lucas is somebody who I could see being influenced by this style of film, like has these cross cuts and the way that they just keep on bounding back and forth between multiple storylines that are going towards an end result. I don't think it is as, um, well, I'm not going to say, I think it's a similar technique of 
four plot lines all merging. You know, you look at even a Phantom Menace that has it in there too. It's like you have the battle with Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. You have the, the uh, you know, the Jake, uh, the Jake Lloyd story with him going up into space. You have, you also have another, I'm, I'm forgetting always like the other thing, but there's always like these mixed things that are all racing towards uh, a conclusion. And, and I think that if you look at like Lucas and Nolan and D.W. Griffith, I think that they all are people who appreciate film. And I think that Lucas obviously is someone who is as studied and versed in, in film and also kind of oddly emotionally disconnected as well as Nolan uh, at, at certain points. You know, we talked about that in American Graffiti episode about that. Um, that I feel like it's really interesting how they build their endings. I don't know. That was, especially in this, I don't know why I thought about Star Wars a lot when I was watching this. It just like, it just felt like that. And you know, in Japan, um, they subtitle what level of dream they are on when they, when this is aired in Japan. So the audience wouldn't be confused at where they were at any given point. (laughs) I mean, I like that we're talking about the craft of editing because to me, that's one of the things that Inception really points out about the act of going to the movies. You know, when you go to the movies, there's like a thing that always makes me giggle when you see it where like two people are having a conversation, you know, right? And say Mm -hmm. they're like walking down the street and they're like, but how did your date with her really go? And then the next person says the next line, but somehow they're like suddenly in a different location. Like they're making coffee. Like, oh, the date was kind of great. Blah, 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 blah. You know how like time skips in movies like that where conversations take place over several locations for no reason? Mm -hmm. I I mean, I giggle when I see that because like, I guess that's, sorry, da-da-da-da-da-da. I mean, what's funny is our whole life of watching movies means we're used to watching stories that take place as though they are kind of in a dream state. You know, the idea of like getting from one place to another without really knowing why or how, accepting the connections and these bridges between like moments and conversations that don't really make a lot of a lot of logical sense. Like, I think a lot of movie editing asks you to buy into the fact that you're like living in a dream state with these characters, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look- I was saying before, I was making fun of Dom Cobb, but I think the reason why it's Dom Cobb is, you know, the whole idea that all these characters, they spell out, every main character, like the first letter of their name spells out dreams. It's Dom, Robert, oh, Eames, Arthur, Maul, uh, and Saito, oh, uh, I which that. I know you hate that. So, but at least is, uh, and if you add Peter, Adrian, and Yusef, their, their, uh, their whole name is Dreams Pay which is what they would do for their mind thiefing. Oh, for God's sake. I think Nolan has too much time on his hands. But like the first part of the movie, that first hour when they're assembling the heist squad, which now that I've seen the Ricky and Morty episode about like making fun of heist movies, I Mm -hmm. can't get over it. Like, but the things that we accept in the normal part of a movie before they're supposedly in a dream, you know, like, Mm -hmm. oh, I just happen to be in Mombasa and like, I just happen to start being chased by this other corporation and Saito just happens to show up and like get it, give me a car to escape in. Those kind of things are very ordinary in most spy movies. But when you put them in a movie about dreaming, you suddenly become more aware of the fact that spy movies exist in a world that where the logic makes only the kind of sense of logic of a dream. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I mean, like when you, yeah, like you're right, like because we eliminate the things that we understand that humans need. You know, I mean, the biggest joke that you could kind of point to is like a show like 24. People go like, well, when does he pee? 
you know, and yeah. And like, there is like, we don't question that. We ultimately don't question that. We're watching Jack Bauer run around, fight bad guys. And he's got effortless energy. You know, he never sits down and goes, God damn it. I'm tired. No. You and know, I love uh, it when they eat, like I love it in the fugitive when they eat, but you're yeah. right. We buy a world where they don't eat. We just buy a world where they're moving and they're moving and they're moving. And, and, and it's, it's the same thing that I love about mission impossible. It's like, where are they sleeping? What are they doing? Like what, <laughs> you know, are they getting hotels here? You know, we don't know. Where did they get the gear from? Um, but it's about forming a team. It's about forming a team. Like, and I, I keep on looking at this movie and saying this is an elevated answer to Ocean's Eleven. And and I think Ocean's Eleven is directed by Steven Soderbergh, the remake, obviously. And uh, I think Steven Soderbergh, in a way, is not slumming, but he took a very simple premise and kind of elevated it in slickness and coolness. And then this takes that Ocean's Eleven, that kind of heist movie, the like our heat or something like that, and just kind of elevates it one more time and says, well, now what if we put a sci-fi twist? So that, again, we, like... We don't question where they go to find these people or how they know, you know, how does, you know, uh, George Clooney know where Casey Affleck is or why is Casey Affleck in this, you know, tractor truck rally or whatever. Like, who cares? It's like we're assembling a team. We want to just embrace that. And I think um, but this movie gets a little bit more through the microscope of. Well, is it real? Is it fake? Is it real? Is it fake? And it's like not the questions that we ask of anything else. And because the movie deals with dreams and we get almost too caught up in it and then we get frustrated with it again. Or again, I'm assuming that people are getting frustrated with it. I mean, it makes me wonder what dreams were like before movies existed. Mm. You know, like when before movies existed, did dreams have as much cross cutting? Like do our dreams influence the way that movies play out or do movies influence how we dream? You know, like were the well, people in the do you think that do you think that your dreams more are like long, coherent dreams than we are? Well, but I don't know if I mean I don't I don't dream like movies. Like you know, I dream like if anything like VR uh, in the sense that like I'm not like my dreams are not cutting. Um, you know, I, I don't think there's a narrative to it. I think you're in a place and things are happening to you and, and the world is morphing around you. I mean, uh, I mean, at least every dream that I can vividly remember seems to be like one long shot. I mean, to a certain degree. It, really? It, yeah. I think mine cut a lot. I would okay. say for the most part, I have very boring dreams. Mm-hmm. Like I would say I have very aggravating dreams. I really, I really don't like my dreams. Like my most reoccurring nightmare has something to do with me needing to like look something up or get an Uber or find directions. And on my phone, I'm touching it, but I keep misspelling words. And I'll spend like an hour in my dream trying to pull up like a piece of information that I need on my phone and I can't. It's absolutely the most deadening dream. And you wake up and you're like, I hate my subconscious for having this kind of anxiety that turns into dreams that are just absolutely boring. They're not even scary. They're just aggravating. Oh, the I mean, worst, I have a worst. I have a dream like that where for a while and I haven't had it in a long time and people please analyze this on the discord and, and everywhere else. But I'm sharing it with you where I have gum in my mouth and I'm trying to take out the gum. And it's <laughs> almost like um like ever see a clown like oh, pull God. out like oh, uh, yeah. so oh, I'm just God, I can never awful. get it out. And, and as I'm pulling it out, the gum is getting bigger in my mouth. So it's almost like it's it, like almost like it's choking me because I can't like I can't get it out of my mouth. It's so uh, yeah, it's so Ugh. kind of like frightening. And it's like and I've had that dream a handful of times. And maybe I'm just chewing on a pillow. I don't know. But uh, but like I think every I, I think the other thing about this is and, and this is kind of a good illustration of it. Everyone's dreams are different, but there are certain things we can recognize in dreams, you know, like about what a dreamlike state is. And I think this movie does a very good job 
of I, where what dreams may come, I think, is almost too fanciful. This mm. is a little bit more basic in the way that I think it's like a skewed reality without it being a magical, wonderful reality. Yeah, it's you know, real it's until cl- it isn't the way that like yeah. well, you, we have the scene right here where, where that's exactly what Leonardo DiCaprio is talking about with Elliot. You create the world of the dream. We bring the subject into that dream and they fill it with their subconscious. How could I ever acquire enough detail to make them think that it's reality? Well, dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something was actually strange. Let me ask you a question. You you never really remember the beginning of a dream, do you? You always wind up right in the middle of what's going on. I guess, yeah. So how did we end up here? Well, we just came from the, uh... Think about it, Ariadne. How did you get here? Where are you right now? We're dreaming. You know, one thing I think is interesting in that scene is, like, he talks about having dreams where you create something. Like, have you ever had a dream? I have these I have these two reoccurring dreams. One is that somebody has invited me to watch a movie, usually on a television. And I'm watching this movie on a, somebody else's television in their living room. And I'm aware in my dream that it's the greatest movie I've ever seen. And as soon as I wake up, it will be forgotten. Mm. And it's absolute torture. And I wake up being like, if I could only write down what that movie was, it was brilliant. Oh, I and mean, I, have, I do that too. Yeah. Do you have that dream? I do. I have that one. And I have the one where I'm reading a book and I'm like, this is the best book I've ever read. And the yes. idea that my subconscious can create something that in my dream I love and I can picture the pages and the ink on the pages and that it disappears. It's so frustrating. Well, it's you so know, frustrating. I, um, you know, I uh, did this thing where I left a pad of paper by the side of my bed and so I could write down and you know I wrote down one night in my sleep and I think this is an episode of Seinfeld as well where you're like well what does it even mean like you're it's it's sort of like it's creating and this goes back to the movie this positive emotional response and they talk about this too it's like we want to have that joy we want to watch something great we want to read something great we want to feel it's not about like we're in our minds we're creating the perfect book but what we are creating is this feeling of watching something. What, what, what does that do? It's like a self, it's like a salve for the human soul. Like when you see something great, when you read something great, it, it gives you a feeling of it. It's, um, it's invigorating in many ways. And I, I think that, you know, they, they talk about this in the movie, like it's so much better to be a positive emotion than a negative emotion. And, and what, you know, the, the main character, Dom, by the way, I know I gave you grief about Dom, but I want to piss you off even more now, Amy, you know, that, that Dom, uh, <laughs> is, uh, is the word for home in Slavic. Uh, but, oh, uh, yeah. So, uh, but like, and you know, you that know, Dom looks exactly like Christopher Nolan. I mean, that. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. That like he dresses like Christopher Nolan. His hair is like Christopher Nolan. Leonardo DiCaprio has the same kind of heart shaped face as as Christopher Nolan. I mean, Christopher Nolan has made a movie where an actor star is or an actor star. I just call Leonardo DiCaprio an actor star. I like an actor star. Uh, Where an actor star is uh, basically playing him in a world where he is the dream master. Well. Yeah, but he's a flawed dream master. He's a dream master who is yeah. He's a he's a dream master who's losing his grip on how to tell or how to dream because he's so caught up in his own bullshit. And you know, 
Look, I'll draw the analogy and just say, and I think you can make that argument for Tenant. I think that he gets in the way of what he's trying to do with Tenant, and it gets so overly convoluted. And I again, I want to rewatch Tenant. I found it to be not fun. Um, and so much so that, like, you know, here at least they try to explain things. Like in Tenant, the characters literally are like, don't worry about this. You won't understand it. And it's like, well, that's now, now, why, what am I watching? You have to, like, let me in a little bit. But I feel like, you know, yeah, I think. And I don't like that whole attitude. Like, apparently, even on Inception, when critics would visit the set of Inception, uh, somebody told the story that, like, Christopher Nolan came up to him and was like, you read the script? Did you understand it? It's like, what is that? Like, did you understand me, bro? Yeah, you know, and it's interesting because I think, you know, what what this is, is you look at it from the idea of a creator. If it is Christopher Nolan writing a movie about Christopher Nolan being the creator of dreams, the movie maker, you know, it's like, am I able to continue to make things that work? A fear that we all have as creatives and you know, am I able to continue doing what people like? Or am I going to lose grasp on that? Am I going to bring in too much baggage to my thing? And then, and whether that baggage is, I've already done it, or I don't want to repeat myself, you know, and obviously the baggage is mall in this. And I don't think that's like Christopher Nolan's dealing with the loss of something, but I think it's like this idea of like this baggage that you carry, this guilt, this weight, this I should have, I yeah. didn't, I want to. It's a to. guilt story, not a love story. Yes. And and look, he's, and the, all the reasons why he feels guilty are valid. Um, but it is, a, it, this is a movie about, you know, addiction, and maybe the addiction is to, to art or whatever the addiction is. But the, the idea is like, can you get over it to get what you want? And I think what he wants you know, obviously the character of Dom wants to go home, wants to see his children again. And to get into the end of the movie, what I love about the end of the movie, I think people are obsessed about, is the top going to stop spinning? But I think what the end of the movie is saying to us is he's okay with the outcome because he doesn't go back to look at the totem. He goes forward. Right. It's about and not looking at it anymore. Exactly. It's not, it's, it's letting go of the fears, letting go of the crutches, letting go of the guilt, whatever it is, whether or not that's a real, I believe that the ending is in the real world. Um, but, it, but I think what it is, is I'm letting go of that. I'm letting go of my of the things that hold me back. And so he gets to, he literally moves forward. Um, you know, and I, there's a lot of like, look, you want to break apart the ending. There's a lot of things online. Yes, the clothes are similar, but they're not the same. And the wedding ring, he wears a wedding ring in the dream state, but he doesn't wear the wedding ring in real life. And at the end of the movie, he's not wearing the wedding ring. There's a lot of like, you can get into all that and that's a different podcast. But I do think like the, this movie is about moving forward. It's not about like recovering from addiction, but it's like letting go of your crutches, letting go of your guilt, letting go of your the things that hold you back to be present in the moment. Because that's really what he's doing. He's being present in the moment. And I think that that's a really interesting story. Yeah, he's being present in the moment without, for I think the only time in the film, needing anything from anybody. 
needing right. anybody to do a thing, needing anybody to do what he needs them to do, directing the scene anymore. He's not directing anymore. Right. He's, he, just, like, he's walking yeah. into the scene. He loved his wife so much that he he tried to direct their time together. I mean, yeah. you know, if you did the math, I think the idea is that they slept for 10 hours. Uh, that's how long this up that would equate to 50 years based on the time that they lay out in the movie. You know, so they had like, you know, they, it wasn't like they were gone for, you know, days or weeks or months or whatever. It was a very short period of time. The same way, like Saito was able to age so quickly in, in minutes, you know, uh, from the plane flight. Um, but I, but yeah, I think it's sort of like, in a way it was like what we all want. I want to capture this moment. I'm in love with this person. I want to be, I want to have this moment. And she wants to have this moment. It's, it's, it's about like the control of life. We are victims to the world around us. You know, we could be driving to the supermarket and get hit by a car and die in a, in a minute in a dream state. You can control it. You can have a power over it. And it's like, I'm having power over this moment. And I think there's something really amazing about relinquishing the control and, you know, and, and whether dreaming is control or drugs are a way, uh, I mean, you know, I, I think addiction more than drugs, but addiction is, you know, uh, a control over you. It's like this thing is an influence over you. And he's like letting go of that. Like, I'm now going to, I am going to be myself. and I'm going to let the cards fall where they may in a way. I hear that. I mean, like where I have some disconnect is yeah. like, on a cerebral level, I think it's an interesting story. I like an idea of a person being haunted by guilt and guilt self-destructing everything they're working for. Mm-hmm. You know, guilt like literally stabbing and shooting the people that he can't have get hurt in his dreams. Like right. the idea of I will destroy myself, I'll destroy my own mission, I'll destroy my own life, you know, because of my guilt. I really like that about Maul. But then there's parts of me where I'm like, okay, so in their love story, love story, the idea that they were in this limbo together for 50 years. The truth is when I see those characters together, I can't imagine them having anything to talk about for 50 years. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't feel like I buy their love story except for being told that they were in love. Like you're Mm -hmm. told that they're in love. Marion Cotillard talks to him very emotionally. You know, I like that little speech she gives right here where she talks about the faceless corporations. The smallest idea such as your world is not real. Simple little thought that changes everything. So certain of your world, of what's real, do you think he is? Or do you think he's as lost as I was? I know what's real, Mo. No creeping doubts. Not feeling persecuted, Dom. Chased around the globe by anonymous corporations and police forces, the weather projections persecute the dreamer. Admit it. You don't believe in one reality anymore. So choose. That feels sort of like a knowing reference to the idea that like being chased by three corporations is kind of a daffy setup, and do we take any of this seriously? Uh, but I don't by them having any sort of actual love. Like, I don't feel the love connection. I'm just told of their love connection. When I was watching the scene, I was actually thinking about um, a movie that we love deeply on this show, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Mm -hmm. and how similar these are. You know, that in that movie, 
we are watching, you know, uh, Jim Carrey's construction of Clementine, like not real Clementine, but his Clementine, like chase, chasing each other through like their dreams and memories of their relationship, how you remember somebody a little bit differently. And as different as those two characters are in that movie, uh, Clementine and, and Jim Carrey, I believe that they're drawn to each other. You're like, I care about them and I want them to be happy. And I don't feel that way at all here about Dom Cobb. And his wife. I feel kind of nothing for them. I'm like, great. You know, you're an interesting plot point. But I wish I was affected emotionally. I think because I started to look at this movie in this way, I I found a tremendous amount of emotion in this idea of letting go. Letting go of trying to control your life. I think that, you know, this last year that we have been, two years now, uh, in this pandemic and everyone has experienced it in different ways. You know, what it showed us was we have no control. We have no control over what is going to happen because there are forces larger than us um, that can totally knock us on our ass. And I think a lot of people were struck by that realization. I think we're seeing the after effects of that, whether it's like, I don't want to go back to work. I'm not fulfilled. I, you know, we've seen marriages break up. We've seen people explore different careers. They have a chance to take a risk because they weren't employed. And, yeah. and, and, and whether that we're risk... that is, the real life we'd all settled for actually wasn't that good. Like we're yeah. waking back up into a real world that we were like, oh, that sucked actually. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, there's so much noise in the world and when we get a chance to like actually be what we want to be, it's a different thing than what society caters to. So there's a way of like going like, what if I took this off me with this pressure off me? Like I, I've, I have uh you know, I have a very uh, dear friend who, you know, transitioned actually two friends who transitioned during this period um, of time. And I think there was something about having this space to, like lean into what their wants and desires truly were. And this idea that we're, what he, I think what's going on here is the same idea. Like what if you took off all these things of how I'm supposed to be, how I'm not supposed to be. And like, let go, like our addiction is to societal norms. Like maybe that's, you know, like let's say that. And if you take that off, like what, what do you become? And, and you don't look back. You make a decision and you move forward and you're going to bravely move forward in that direction. I, maybe I'm, I'm putting too much on it. You're right. I don't think that that is, I don't think you walk out of this movie crying. I don't, because you don't see him embrace his kids. I don't, and I think the movie ends on this like kind of, is it real? Is it not? I think that Nolan is not being as vague as people want it to be. Um, I also think he's not spoon feeding you the answer because like, what would be the fun of the top going clunk, you know? Uh, but I do think it's, a, I, I guess what I'm saying is like, we wrestle so much with the questions of, is it real? Is it not real? What about this? What about this? And what does that mean? What does that mean? And the truth is, I think the talking point is what are the things that we do in our own lives that hold us back from being complete and not sabotaging ourselves or our team or our mission in life? I mean, I like what you're saying because to me, you being able to put you know, a 2020 interpretation on Inception. To me, that makes Inception a living film because I right. think Inception gets talked about as a film with answers 
Mm -hmm. You know, where you're like, I want to solve Inception. I want to look up what Proculus Global is and understand where Proculus comes from. But you're talking about it in a level of art. Like, where do I find meaning in this movie on its own, on terms that are personal to me? Right. And that's what I want from a film. And that's my favorite filmmakers do that. And I think, I think if I could let go of the internet culture of right and correct and truth and the hack and the real meaning of that exists in the, in the conversation around inception, where you take it is interesting because what this film also has a lot in common with is Solaris. You know, mm-hmm. a, a film that we also mm-hmm. talked about here, a film that I think has so many openings to be chewed on in different ways and pulled apart and thought of. And I want it to feel like, I think there's something about a Nolan film that can feel so cold and impersonal, but when you make it personal, then I think it works. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. Sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. I mean, it's almost like I want to save Nolan from himself. You know, this being the film that I think creates Nolanisms. Like, I don't think people went to go see The Dark Knight because they were like, Christopher Nolan, I got to see what Christopher Nolan is. But then Christopher Nolan becomes a person that you really start to analyze. I mean, in a way, the power of being a director and the power of being an architect, you know, these two things that kind of exist in tandem here in this movie, the power of thinking of something and creating it, of like building a world, is that you get to come up with something and then make it actually real. Like a director gets to come up with an idea that's bothering him or fascinates him and then hire and cast it, make the sets, like realize his vision. And sometimes only after you do that, do then it, you understand it. Like it's it's fascinating to like go and try to like read interviews with Christopher Nolan about his work because what you kind of hear in those interviews and really in almost any interview with a director is someone like me is like, I watch your film and I think that you deep down think this about the world. And they're like, oh God, do I? In this Christopher Nolan book, somebody points out to him that when they go to kind of the sleep drug den in Mombasa, Mm -hmm. they're like, all those beds that you have set up, all those carts, it looks exactly like your dorm in college. Did you do that on purpose? And then he's like, oh, did I do that on purpose? And it's like you create these things and visualize them, the stuff that's in the back of your mind, and then everybody gets to interpret your dreams. I mean, I guess that's what being a director is. You're the person who then gets interpreted. Like, we're all going inside his dreams. Well, and this is what I love about, like, directors, and I think P.T. Anderson is like this, and I think Nolan is like this, where they say, you figure it out. I'm not here to guide you through the answers. I'm not here to tell you what to think. Like, because I think the best directors 
go, I'm making something. I have an idea in mind. I think there's two things at play. A director that knows what they want to make and a director who is finding what they want to make. And I think a director who knows what they want to make um, is a lot more powerful because they have an intent. Now, you may not get that intent, but it's there. And it's not like, it's not like, can you decode it and figure it out? And if you did, you win the smart points. Yeah, um, it, which is, it is how this film gets talked about. Exactly. And I think, and that's the conversation that I think is bad. It's like, it's not about, is it what this, it's like, what is the conversation that comes out of it? And to me, P.T. Anderson and um, and Nolan, are, are, and there's many more, are incredibly tight-lipped about what does it mean? Like, well, what are you saying? Like, well, what do you think I'm saying? And even if you're not, because art once given over to society is no longer art anymore. But I could have a painting in my house that makes me feel a certain way. And that may not be what the artist intended, but that's okay because that's how I am embracing it. And I think we you're right. We live in a culture of internet where it's like, well, what is the right? I want to know the right thing. Not, you know, and it's, it's less fulfilling. It's, it's more, we want a Rubik's cube instead of like a Zen garden. You know, um, I did a movie called happily. I like that. Ooh. Yeah. Rubik's cube instead of a Zen garden. Put on a t-shirt. Uh, but like, uh, but you know, I did this movie happily, uh, that just came out and it's a movie. uh, Thanks. Yeah. It's a fun movie. And, um, the ending is, can be interpreted in many different ways, I think. And, you know, and I've seen people do video essays on what the end means. And I've seen people, you know, talk about it. And, I, and I've talked to the director of Ben David Grabinski about it. And he hasn't, you know, we we worked on this movie and had ideas and, and, and there are sequences in there that we have to talk about. And he did a really good job of allowing me to bring what I wanted to bring in, but he's also directing me. Like he directed me in something... Uh, that I look back on now is like, oh, he incepted me. Like he gave me something that actually he needed for the movie that I didn't know to bring because it it does play into a larger part of the film. And and I think that hopefully what you want is everyone is coming at this piece in a way that is unique to them. And the director is just kind of guiding the puzzle. So the, the puzzle still feels complete. But, you know, DiCaprio could have come in here and going, this is what I think it's about. And somebody else, could, I, this is what I think it's about. Like John David Washington was like, I, I had to continually ask him, like, what about this? What about this? What about this? And I think you have to make these decisions and let the director know that the director is going to guide you so the director can make what he or she wants to feel complete. But once it's in the world, it's like whatever people want. And mm-hmm. I think that's a hard, I think that's a hard thing it's a hard thing to feel like I don't know. And it makes us think. And we are not critical thinkers. I think we're getting further and further away from critical critical thought. And that probably is what I really want to say. And I said that in a very long-winded way. I mean, to your point, like what's also kind of funny when you go through and read interviews from the actors who made Inception is almost all of them say something kind of similar to what Tom Hardy does here. Um, the, the beauty of this piece uh, was that behind it was not only the director and the writer had fully visualized it on the page but also carried the wealth of knowledge with him of creating it so it was a situation whereby yes it was demanding to read but the responsibility to understand and solve the problems was taken off of us Mm -hmm. i mean basically every actor kind of says like i don't know what it's about 
Chris explained it to me in person, but it was really nice to actually not have to care. Like Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, he said, you know, you have to have Chris in person, try to articulate it. Celia Murphy is like, you just, you defer to his knowledge. You know, you just sort of, the actors in this movie sounds like they took the specificity that they were told to do in this exact moment. And they did it without really seeing the bigger picture, which in a way I find kind of frustrating on their behalf. Like I like thinking of film as more of a collaborative effort than that. But it is interesting the trust that you give to creating somebody else's vision. I mean, I'm not an actor myself, so I can only imagine what it's like for you to like say, I give myself to you. I know I only see this piece of it. I hope that you put me in good hands, that my dream is safe and you will not send me and my career to limbo where I will be tarnished forevermore. Like you put trust in directors when you make films. Well, I mean, when you sit down with somebody, you say to them, you know, if you're lucky enough to have that conversation, like, what do you need from me? And and I think that that can come in a, a few different ways. I think that can come in the way of saying, I'm a waiter in this scene. I actually heard this conversation. I'm going to steal the conversation I heard uh, on Dead Eyes, Connor Ratliff's podcast. Um, he was talking to Paul Feig and uh, he was talking about this performance that Jack McBrayer gave um, in... Arrested Development. And Jack McBrayer is a very interesting performer. I think he's incredibly funny. And no one can do anything like Jack McBrayer. The role of Kenneth is uniquely Jack McBrayer's character because it's Jack. Uh, you know, or it's the only way that Jack could do that Jack does comedy. And I love the way that Jack does comedy. But, you know, what they were talking about in this moment was a lot of people try to make this one line the moment. What is the moment I'm doing here? Like, what is, you know, I have one line. I have to steal the scene. Even if I'm a waiter saying, check, please. Or, you know, or here's your check. Like, and, and so actors often come in and they, and they are thinking about what they want to do and, and how they're going to do it. And they, and, you know, and, and immediately. Check, please. Check, please. Exactly. And, and then the director will, and I've been this director and I've seen this happen on sets. I've been, I've seen it happen many times. I've, I, I've been the actor. Where the director's like, throw it away. Throw it away. It's natural. Just throw it away. Just be like you are creating a piece of the puzzle. And I guess all this to say is like we all are doing our jobs. And as long as we're doing our jobs truthfully and we believe in what we're doing and not trying to like we can't control the larger picture of of anything. I think that's one of the cool things about film is like the director is the person who has the whole film in their head, the whole idea in their head and is guiding this process. So it actually feels right. So they know when they tell you, no, amp it up or no, bring it down. You have to trust in them. And, and that can come in comedy. that can come in drama that can come all over the place. When I worked with Adam on Arch Enemy, I came in for one day to do this bit. You know, it's a pretty crazy Adam's sequence. Adam's my in- boyfriend. Yes. <laughs> a, a pretty crazy sequence in the film. And I haven't been on set. I don't know what the thing is. So I have to look to him and say, is this too much? Is this too little? Because I'm not there. I don't know. It's not not a play. You know, so it's I think there's this a cool thing about trusting the process. I, now I'm I feel like I've gotten off track. But I, I guess this idea of like we are all we're all cogs in a machine and you just have to trust that the like you know you kick the tires on the machine you go all right this machine's good i'm going to trust this machine it's and it's only when you start to rebel against the machine that you see movies like really start to fall apart you know like well the lead actor didn't trust the director or they they these people didn't like they they won't like they won't go into the process and i think that uh for a nolan movie you have to just trust the process and i think every actor has to come to the table going 
this is what I think. And knowing that the director will say, nope, that's too much. That's too little. More of this, less of that. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know. That, like, I, I got off track to only say that uh, we're all puppets. <laughs> we're all puppets. <laughs> uh, but that's okay. But that's okay because it's not, but like the individual actor, it's not the individual actor's vision. It's the director's vision. Uh, and you are helping fulfill that vision. But how you get there may be very different. Well, now like you're you talking may, yeah. about the movie that I was thinking about this entire time, which is which my is? favorite movie, which is Synecdoche, New York. Oh, because, I love that movie. Because yeah. as I was watching Inception, I was like, Inception is just like cold Synecdoche, New York, you know, mm-hmm. like, because these are also both films about like people who feel guilty, who are creating their own worlds, who are creating like nesting levels of a world. I mean, if, if people haven't seen Synecdoche, New York, A, Congratulations. You have an open door to see one of the greatest movies ever. You're going to be really excited that you do. But it's about a director, not an architect, but a film director, another person who's in charge of creating what they do, um, basically casting and recreating his life over and over again and taking bits of it and getting it, getting further and further away from living his life in all of his attempts to make and recast his life. And I find that film to be one of the two best movies ever made. And so... I'm trying to figure out why I love a Kaufman approach so much more than a Nolan approach, because it might just be something pheromonal, you know, how certain people like different perfumes or like I, maybe I feel a little bit away the way that the way everything that people say about Titanic that I'm like, oh, get over it already is how yeah. I feel about Nolan. When people are like Titanic, I mean, sure, it's ambitious, but the dialogue is dumb. And I'm like, oh, stop. Who cares? But with this movie, I am a person who's like, oh. The dialogue is really dumb and it takes it out. And I feel like whatever that process is, it happens somewhere deep in each individual audience's own subconscious. Like, I think I like the messy humanity that that Kaufman adds to his films. Every single one of his sets looks lived in and dirty, like there's dust bunnies in the corner. Maybe I just like dust bunnies. Maybe I'm a dust bunny filmmaker or a filmmaker, film audience fan. And, and Christopher Nolan's stuff is too clean and scrubbed for me. We're well, too, I mean, too but removed I, of like the I, idea that human beings live in his actual sets. I guess here's what I'm thinking. Maybe this is I'm, I'm trying to like articulate something. I'm having a hard time totally articulating. I think that there's a difference between the aesthetic of a director, and I agree that these are very clean. It's like solid lines, but also what an actor brings. An actor has a lived life, and where they may not have the experience of having their wife commit suicide in front of them, they can engage with a level of trauma or a level, they can find something within them to, to do, right? And it may not be the intent, like the intent of the director is like, no, no, you've watched your wife die, but you're hiring an actor for what they bring to the table. And I think great acting is a result of great living, uh, because you have experienced certain things and sometimes you've experienced those things because you've chosen to explore and find those things. Sometimes you have, uh, you have been forced in circumstances, but sometimes these, these amazing experiences, like I was thinking about like, um, Olivia Rodrigo and Gwen Stefani, they've made these amazing albums that are about breakups, right? And, and there is, and they are amazing singers. Yes. But what, what happens is, is these life experiences make them bring something into the world that is completely unique to them, but also incredibly universal. Uh, and then it makes them these huge hits. So I, I think that every actor is bringing 
that internal thing. So yes, the lines may look different, but Philip Seymour Hoffman, if he was in a Nolan movie or in a Kaufman movie, is going to be bringing the same amount of emotional intensity. I don't I think that- I wonder if he yeah, would though. I really? mean, because remember we were talking about this with Kubrick, that almost mm-hmm. none of Kubrick's actors ever get directed in a way where they get an Oscar nomination, that his well, films because, uh, do not show off the actors. And I do feel like there is that in a Nolan film, with the exception of- uh, of course, he's led, Heath Ledger, who, you know, lived in a world of his own and did something just completely special with the Joker. But uh, when we talk about all of the amazing characters we've covered, even just in this summer blockbuster series, I mean, I don't know who in here from this film, I would say pops as much as like Marty McFly or like Will Smith mm-hmm. in Men in Black or Kristen Wiig even in Bridesmaids last week. Or Zach Galifianakis in Hangover. I mean, or Zach Galifianakis yeah. in Hangover. Yeah, I don't think that Nolan allows his actors here to pop as individuals. I mean, sometimes there's things where I'm just like, they do seem more referential. I mean, in the whole hotel sequence, he dresses up um, Elliot Page like Kim Novak in Vertigo. You know, same mm-hmm. gray suit, same pumps. And mm-hmm. you're sort of like, I don't know why, but you did it. Like, I don't feel Well, I guess, I guess I'm saying it's... I, I mean, think maybe what it is a, is like, so I'll just squeeze this out. Like, yeah. I feel like, I feel like Philip Seymour Hoffman in Synecdoche, New York exudes shame, like feels it, sweats it out of his pores. And I feel like Leonardo DiCaprio here can talk about guilt and shame, but it doesn't it doesn't flow out of him in the same way. I can't smell it on him. There's nothing embarrassing about Ooh, the way you see, that it's that, performed. You see, but that's that's where I disagree with you because I really? believe that, yes, I believe that what DiCaprio is doing in this movie is actually very much Tom Cruisean in the sense of it is an mm-hmm. underlying like I think Tom Cruise gets a bad rap of not being a good actor and I think he's oh, doing yeah. a lot under the surface that is it like yes you are right Nolan movies don't have like these monologues or these moments and when we talk about Marty McFly like the characters have these like they don't have even the pauses I think the, the kind strong of, POV yeah. or like, you're right yes you're you're I think We are saying the same thing, but I'm coming to a different conclusion, which is I believe that text in a Charlie Kaufman movie can present an amazing performance. I think that the dialogue is amazing. I think that this deep rooted emotional resonance has to come from the actor. So I believe that if Philip Seymour Hoffman was in this movie, he wouldn't have the flashy monologue. He wouldn't have these beats that he might have in a Charlie Kaufman movie, but he would still bring that energy and intensity. And I think, unfortunately, what happens is these, we're looking at the spectacle and we stop looking at the actor. But when I was watching DiCaprio, I was like, he is playing an addict in this movie you can see it and it's subtle and small but because he's not saying i'm an addict i'm a this i'm a that he's very even keeled like (laughs) you know like like that song i'm a bitch i'm an addict i'm a lover (laughs) but uh but like that idea that that idea i think there's an internal life that actors bring to a nolan thing that yes it may not be presented in the same way where you get to see uh these levels of and layers and dialogue. But I think to be effective in a Nolan movie, you have to have that intensity. In a Kubrick film, I would argue he takes actors that are not... Uh, this is a very broad statement, but actors who probably are giving the best performances of their career, 
But they are props. They are props. And I think that Fincher sometimes can have the tendency to do that as well, where it's like they are just articulating something that is Fincher and and the way that Fincher wants him to be. And I think sometimes yeah. lesser actors just become this. I think that Nolan I mean, actors... even Hitchcock would do that. Like, there's a yes. famous bit where somebody, an actor would ask Hitchcock, like, um, what's my motivation? And he would just say, your salary. Yeah, right. Yeah, And so I, I, I don't know. I just think that there is something here. Where I think Nolan wants the actors to bring... I don't think that Nolan is saying, do what I want you to do. I think Nolan's like, make your own choice and then play it, but don't change with my dialogue. Don't get in there yeah. and, and start. And so I, this I, that's... This might be our most unimproved film of the entire series. Oh, absolutely. And, I, and, I, and, and I'm not against... Like, I think that like Nolan is often viewed as this like humorless uh, adult. But, I, you know, it's interesting because like when you talk about Synecdoche... I'll tell you one thing that I know, and I know this from just a personal story. Is this gossip? Uh, Is this it, gossip? It, it might be, but I think it's worthy of telling, and I don't think it's like really revealing a, a tremendous amount. Philip Seymour Hoffman prepared for that movie every day by watching monster movies, Barla, Boris Karloff monster films. And that's what he was using to be this character this this i think he felt like a, like so that like that's maybe not what charlie kaufman thought like charlie kaufman wasn't maybe writing this but i think charlie kaufman comes from an, an, an intensely emotional place um so anyway i think every actor gets into their own skin and and, and it will and the synergy will work they just have to make a choice <laughs> anyway, I mean that, that that you know I'm saying like I think that I think and I think that some directors don't allow actors to make a choice and are micromanaging it. Like we talked about in the Unforgiven episode, how Clint Eastwood says, "You do the acting, I do the directing," and I think that that's what Nolan does. You do the acting, I do the directing. When people go like, "Well, what are my?" Well, I have a question about my character. You do the acting, I do the directing, and and that's how that's how I judge it. I think whereas uh, Kubrick and Fincher are like, no, 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 that wasn't the way I wanted it in my head. You must do it like this. You uh, must do it as I have said in my dreams. Yes. I mean, that that's, That to me, I mean, again, and this is very, this is based on some stories I know, this is based on on my perception of how I see these films. Uh, you know, look, I think Barry Lind is an amazing movie. I, I think that, I think that there are directors who know, like, I need a face, and I can get this emotion. I think Hitchcock is one of those people too. I need a face, and I can get this thing. I can get, yeah. I can get this. And, I mean, and when it does I get sound it, like yeah. in the drafting periods, like Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, the whole casting of this, like, apparently, first Christopher Nolan gave the script to Brad Pitt and told Brad Pitt he had forty-eight hours to let him know whether or not he wanted it. In but if you went in a dream state, that could be like about <laughs> one hundred and fifty years. Yeah. But he's basically like 48 hours. And when, and when Brad Pitt didn't sign up, he was like, on to the next. I think he apparently did that to Will Smith, too. And then he wound up on um, Leonardo DiCaprio. And I think Leonardo DiCaprio was the one who kind of read the script when it was more of a heist film and pushed him to add some sort of emotional level to it. I think originally the mal of the script was supposed to be more short, almost for Maltese Falcon. Like it was supposed to be oh, wow. more of a Maltese Falcon idea. You know how in the Maltese Falcon, which we covered in season one, um, Humphrey Bogart feels guilty because his partner died because he sent him on a mission. That was kind of going to be the more of the setup here, that Mal was going to be his business partner who died on a mission. And then I think Leo pushing for more emotion. He was like, a wife. But I wonder how Emmett Thomas feels because it, like half of his movies are about your wife done died, man. You know, or like somebody left you. What are you going to do? Your girlfriend blew up. Like, 
your girlfriend is possibly trying to kill you. They must have a strong relationship that none of this is personal to her. And she understands him making these films. Yeah. With her. Yeah. She's making them with him. I mean, uh, yeah. And I, I also just believe that, like, I think love and marriage is one of the most complex uh I don't think you need to be married to experience this. I think that love is a very complex thing where you have equal parts of all the emotions, you know, at, at certain points, you know, you can go from like hating this person in a moment to, I can't live my life without this person. You could, you could, in a day, you can kind of, you can kind of go around the gamut, like, because you actually are vulnerable with them. And, and what if I made this mistake? What if I brought this person down the wrong hole? What if I, I created as something that they can't get back from? I, I just, I find it to be, you know, it's, it, you know, I think we always go back to like father and daddy issues and mother. And, and that's, that's interesting enough. But I think, uh, you know, a marriage is, 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 or a, a, a long-term loving relationship is also equally complex and, and maybe even more relatable. No, it's true. I, you know what I think is striking though, about our conversation so far, it's that we aren't really talking that much about the movie. We're talking about our reaction to it. And right. I like that. I mean, because Me it too. means that Christopher Nolan has created a thing that we want to talk about, to talk around. I mean, I as much as I like to grouse about movies like Inception that I feel like have answers, if you don't approach it that way, this is a movie where I think we have a great conversation. It is a work of art that can be pulled apart and interpreted and bickered about. And like, what does this mean? And what is this about? And I mean, even in a way, like, I think he has made choices in the making of this film that allow us to talk about it like art. Like he said once um, that when he was editing the film, you know, that early scene where he's with Michael Caine, where like Michael Caine and Leo are talking like that original scene where Michael Caine kind of sets up a lot of what's happening was, I think, at least two times as long in the first cut. And it was all of the backstory that he thought we would need for the rest of the film. And then... Christopher Nolan basically was like, this is dragging the film down. It's making it too slow. What if I just cut this in half? And maybe you don't have to completely know that it's his father-in-law. You know, maybe you don't really even, maybe we can leave some of this cryptic. So he cut out things for pace that made it more cryptic, which I think in this case, make it more fun to kind of pull apart and to, and to talk about. Yeah. I think what we're getting at too is this movie works on a couple of different levels. And I think the reason why this movie was such a big hit is because it's a spectacle. At the end of the day, he has three concurrent action movies going on. It's a heist within these three levels. It's visually stunning. The cinematography is beautiful. The music is great. The actors are huge. And you can walk away just going, yeah, I like that movie, you know, about the guys who get in the dreams. This is a cool, that's cool. I like that. Like, it, like it, it can be very base. And then there is... Do you ever get in trouble with the New York contingent for making them sound like that? I am New York. I Look, <laughs> I, I grew up in New York. I grew up in Long Island. I can't get more New York than Long Island. Uh, that accent, everything. But, like, there is that idea where it is fulfilling in the same way that I think a Marvel movie is fulfilling. It is a spectacle. It is exciting. It is... There's a pace to it. There's an energy to it. It's not overly uh, done. It's two hours, you know, or maybe it's a little bit longer, two hours and a half. Um, But it just moves. And I think there's that level of this film that works. Then I think there's a level of the people who just want to debate the ending. Is he dreaming? Is he awake? Right. Then there that and that can that's a night out. You can have a very active conversation. Now, there's been plenty, like I said earlier, plenty of people out there. If you want to 
pick apart that. There are Reddits. There are interviews. Michael Caine, as you just mentioned, um, has spilt the beans once or twice about what his, his beans, his, his British beans, baked beans. His, yes. Um, but I've never had a conversation like this about the movie. And I think watching it this time, and I haven't watched it a million times, I really, I think I probably only watched it two or three times. And this might, you know, and this is the second or the third. I don't know. Um, but the idea you were being, dreaming the second time that you saw it. I was it. dreaming it. I, you know, I guess I feel like I've seen clips of it throughout the years, but it's not something I revisit. And when I rewatched this time, it really st- stuck out to me, like how much of a metaphor this movie is, whether it was for addiction. And then we started talking about passion and creativity. And you start to see like, yes, this is a very personal movie. This is an independent, small film idea couched in a giant world building blockbuster. And I think throughout this whole series, we've seen elements of that. Um, But this, to me, like epitomizes the best of all of those things. It, it is, you know, telling a personal story. It's doing it in a big way. It has drama. It has action. It has adventure. You know, it has this, um, I don't know. There's something very elevated about this movie if you choose to go there. But if you don't want to, it's totally fine. Well, on that idea of choice, I'm thinking, you know how in our Bridesmaids episode last week, we talked about how that movie was framed and sold as if you care about ever seeing a woman in a movie again, you will go see Bridesmaids opening weekend. Yes. Or worse, a hangover. Hangover for the ladies. Hangover for the ladies. I wonder if there is something in that relationship with Inception where it felt like if you ever want blockbuster movies to feel like they're not talking down to you and saying blockbuster fans only want the lowest common denominator of explosions, go see Inception. Like you kind of like people voted with their dollars to say, don't make us think that we're dumb just because we like blockbuster movies. Well, yeah, I think this film shows you can have your cake and eat it too. You know, I don't want to keep on throwing Marvel under the bus. I'd rather throw Transformers under the bus. Okay, and, fine. I mean, you're uh, welcome to throw Marvel under bus. I'll drive. No, because I know you will. But I'm saying, but I, I think Marvel is more elevated than certain other blockbusters. And when you look at something like Transformers, that is just spectacle. And it's wall-to-wall spectacle. And the, the CGI may be amazing. And the humor may be slight. And the action is, you know, uh, to a point where you're just sort of like... I get tired. It makes me tired. It actually puts me to sleep, those those action sequences. I don't know where, who's fighting who. I don't know what's even happening. Oh, my God. You're exactly like my boyfriend. He falls oh, really? asleep at the climactic fight in every single Marvel movie. Something in him shuts down, and he's like, I don't care. That and he immediately is, goes to bed. I, I can do the same exact thing for when it just becomes vehicles or... It just becomes mowing down uh, thousands of space. Yeah, robots. it yeah. doesn't. It, it really it puts me to sleep. Um, all that being said, I think that Christopher Nolan shows he can do it now, not to get ahead of ourselves because we still have a little bit more show to go. I think next week is also going to be an example of this as well. These elevated blockbusters. It's a matter of. Do you have the right person behind it? it you know, will Chloe Zhao make the internals? This movie that is part Chloe Zhao and part Marvel, will we get that, you know, in, on a on a deeper level? Because obviously directors in the Marvel universe can bring their own style to it. But can we go to a much more 
you know, thoughtful place and yet enjoy it for also what it is. And I think it's a hard balance. I don't know. I don't know many people that are great at doing it. I don't think that there are many examples of people doing that. You know what? Okay. Brahm, I'm going to make a Brahm interruption because I think there is something important to say. You know, here we are in a movie that's all about ideas. Where do ideas come from? Who owns an idea? And in my reading about this film, it seems pretty clear that I have been wrong about attributing the Brahm to Hans Zimmer. Hans Zimmer is not the inventor of the Brahm. Oh, wow. No, there's a whole history of the Brahm in that, in fact, it was an early teaser for Inception where there was an early Brahm, a pre-Zimmer Brahm, and that Brahm was put into it by a composer named Mike Zarin. Here's a little snippet of his Brahm. And now, Mike Zarin himself will say that he was inspired by a film that you love, Transformers, their mm-hmm. teaser, having a, a proto-Brahm. But then if that Brahm didn't sound like the Brahm that you know, it's because a different composer, Zach Hemsey, when he did the trailer of Inception, came up with his own Brahm. And so this is maybe the signature Brahm, and it is, again, Zach Hemsey, not, 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 not Hans Zimmer. Conscious security. You're talking about dreams. I just thought that was interesting. I mean, apparently really the origin did, yeah. of the Brahm from Mike Zarin is that when he was making the uh, teaser for Inception, he had almost nothing to go off of. He had like a picture of Leonardo DiCaprio on a speeding train. And he was like, that's what this movie is about. And I'm supposed to compose to this. OK, sure. Because uh, Nolan is super big on secrecy, like even his creators. Like Nolan said that when he was an intern back before he'd made a single film, he read the script for Pulp Fiction before the movie came out. And that when he saw the movie, he was always so sad he'd read the script before and that it had kind of ruined uh. for him. And so he said that, that is like the inception of his idea of never letting people know too much about his own movies. But that said, he only gave um, Mike Zarin a picture of a train. So then Mike Zarin was like, well, I guess I'll make train sounds. And he came up with his Brahm, this one again, from being on trains and listening to kind of like the chugging, chugging motion and like warping that sound to create that. I guess you'd call it patient zero Brahm. Wow. I love that. (laughs) But Amy, I believe that there is uh, so much to say about this movie. And there's so many people out there that can talk about the cinematography and the music, and we've really kind of shortchanged a lot of elements about the film. Uh, suffice it to say, I think that we had a, a more interesting discussion about some bigger thematic things, and I think, in a way, got me more connected to Nolan overall. But um, I would imagine that the reviews of this movie are kind of all over the place, because I can see how... If you get too caught up in the reality, you're like, well, it doesn't make that much sense. Or I could see how it's bloated. I, I could see a lot of different. I could see how it's genius. I, 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 The reviews must be as complex as the film itself. Well, yeah. I mean, they did, as we touched on earlier in the episode, like go through waves. Opens to 100%. Tons of hype. Um, lots of freshness in the air because it was uh, released to certain groups of critics first. Please be aware of this, everybody listening. Whenever a Disney film, whenever the early reviews come out and they're all like glowing, it's because Disney invites certain critics that they know will really love it. Critics don't get paid by Disney or anybody, but they do pick who sees the movies first so that they will shape the conversation. So 
That is what happens here. It opens to 100%. Um, it drops to 83%. Top critics had it even lower than that. Uh, but people really like to debate it. They, I think this is a movie where the critics themselves wanted to be like, I'm smarter than this movie. Let's we'll get into it. Uh, so I picked a review from David Denby of New York Magazine. And this is what he writes. With its dreams, dreams within dreams, and dreams within dreams within dreams, Christopher Nolan's Inception manages to be clunky and confusing on four separate levels of reality. While out here in this even more perplexing dream we call life, it's being hailed as a masterpiece on the order of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Wake up, people. Nolan, who wrote the script, thinks it's thinks like a mechanical engineer. And here he gets into how he hates how the cast is directed that like specifically hates that like Elliot Page only gets these really empty lines and that Tom Hardy, who is an actor that he thinks has a lot of charisma, gets increasingly more grim that Nolan just cannot direct actors to have life. Um, he says he's not sure to think what to, about Cillian Murphy, that Nolan never makes like a stance on whether or not it's even good that they're doing this to him. Like Cillian is just sort of this fodder. Um, and then he says that DiCaprio wears the same haunted face throughout and that the tone is so solemn. I felt out of line, even cracking a smile. The attackers, the attackers in Inception are anonymous. The tone flat and impersonal. Nolan is too literal minded, too caught up in TikTok logistics to make a great untethered dream movie. For the record, I wanted to surrender to this dream. I didn't want to be out in the cold alone, but I truly have no idea what so many people are raving about. It's as if somebody went into their heads while they were sleeping and planted the idea that Inception is a visionary masterpiece. And hold on, wait, I think I get it. The movie is a metaphor for the power of delusional hype, a metaphor for itself. I get it. I get that. I don't begrudge anyone who does not like this movie, only because... It requires a little bit more. It's not as simple. I think that there's a version of this movie, maybe the Spielberg version of this movie, that embraces more of the dream and the adventure and the heist. Uh, but this movie, I think, forces, uh, like Nolan, I think, does, you know, turn left when other movies might turn right. And uh, and good. We shouldn't love all the movies. We shouldn't. I mean, clearly, that, that's what we've learned, uh, you know, time and time again. Well, you know, though, on that idea of love and hate, I've been thinking about something that goes by you know, fairly simply in this movie where Tom Hardy is explaining how implanting ideas work. And he says that it's much easier for a positive idea to stick than a negative idea to stick. And I've been thinking about this because I think he's wrong. Really? Honestly, like that. I, I mean, you're, you're a person who does work that gets put out into the ether mm -hmm. for every 10 compliments you get. If somebody says one negative thing, doesn't that kind of stick with you a little more? And you're like, grr. Oh, absolutely. But I wonder if at the at the root, you have to believe in yourself. And, you know, I think that that idea that we're all a fraud and a phony when someone sees through us, um, then we would just quit. Right. Uh, so we have to kind of find those. We have to believe in ourselves enough to keep on going because those people who say the thing that might hit us, something that we think that no one else is thinking, uh, is not stopping us from continuing. And if it does, oh, yeah. then you didn't believe in yourself. So I do believe that deep down inside, you need that positive uh, to move forward. That's true. But in terms of the idea of somebody's thought and planting an idea in you, it yeah. is the negative one that sticks and then you fight it off. Like you have to fight it off double because it sticks. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I don't think that that's something that you look back on. Like I, I can tell you that in the moment, there's been, you know, there's been things that I've been like, ah, you know, that got me, and uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm upset about that. But the truth is, is uh, I probably look to the positive moments more to keep me going. 
Do you think so? I, do. I mean, if so, you're like psychologically much stronger than most people I know. Because well, I feel like good things are great, but for the worst part of it, even though, even if we don't want to, we chew over the negative. We chew over it. But again, I just want to say that I don't think that we, uh, we don't exist in it. I can't, I can tell you that there are moments that I've been like, oh God, I feel like a piece of shit and, and I'm terrible and all that sort of stuff. But I can't tell you that like it goes away, it like stings and then it goes away. And then it, you know, but, and I, I think I take my wins more than I take my losses. Well, good for you. I think you should write a self-help book. <laughs> well, let me give you another quiz. Okay. So there's this moment. Pop earlier. quiz, hot shot. Yeah. Pop quiz, hot shot. I'm going to call this a parasite quiz. So you know that earlier in the film then, Leonardo DiCaprio is uh, talking to Ken Watanabe and he's like, what is the parasite that like lasts in your body, man? What is the most resilient parasite? Bacteria? A virus? An intestinal worm? Uh, what Mr. Cobb is trying to say. An idea. Resilient, highly contagious. Once an idea has taken hold of the brain, it's almost impossible to eradicate. An idea that is fully formed, fully understood, that sticks. Right in there somewhere. For someone like you to steal? Yes, in the dream state, your conscious defenses are lowered and it makes your thoughts vulnerable to theft. It's called extraction. Mr. Saito, we can train your subconscious to defend itself from even the most skilled extractor. How can I do that? Because I am the most skilled extractor. So yeah, so like Leo's idea is that it's an idea, that an idea is the number one most tenacious parasite. But do you know what the number one most tenacious parasite is? Because I decided I actually had to look up the real answer. Like a true, like a, like a okay, yes, tell yeah, me. Like a true ass parasite. It is called Toxoplasma Gandhi, and about 50 million Americans have it right now. About oh half God. the world has it all together. It, it's oh the God. one that like hides out in cats. Like it's a parasite that really loves to be around cats. And so it's like, if you have a cat, you probably could have it as a person who has had cats oh all her life. Well, there's uh, yeah. a big dog disease going on right now. Everyone's <laughs> getting their dog vaxxed. I know. All right, look, yeah. Oh, man. What else do we need? What else yeah. do we need to get? But toxoplasmic Gandhi, it doesn't really do that much to people, except what they found out in laboratory rats is that if you inject a rat with toxoplasma Gandhi, because it wants to get into cats, it makes a rat less afraid of cats. Isn't that wild that this parasite gets inside a rat's brain and it's like, you want to be around a cat, don't you? You want to be around a cat, don't you? Just so the cat will eat the rat and then the rat will get the parasite. That is, I, I mean, <laughs> I yeah, I mean, no, I, I do want to know that. I'm, <laughs> I'm fascinated. I'm then, you know, look, I brought something to the table, which I didn't even actually bring to the table. I'm going to say that our, uh, our engineer, Devin, uh, movie uh, mind, as you've heard on previous episodes uh, with our producer, Josh, they've gone at it uh, with their own list. But uh, he brought to my attention something that is a little less uh, upsetting than parasites and cats, but uh, a little bit more fun than everything that we've been talking about, which is uh, our friend, Alan Partridge, you know, Alan Partridge, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Steve Coogan character, great uh, character, uh, has a really funny Inception bit that I thought would be, uh, well, I didn't think, Devin thought it would be great, and I'm going to give him full credit and say that uh, I think we should play that, uh, that bit right now. Norwich. One. Adult. Afternoon. 
Inception. N no. Inception. No. Inception. No. Inception. No. Inception. No. <laughs> it's so dumb, and it needs to be played. I mean, at the end, we needed a little, <laughs> a little lift after that. Um, it's so good. <laughs> you know, we did it. We talked about this movie, but I guess the question remains: Would we shoot this into space? And obviously, we're going to have a bigger conversation about this in a little bit of time, where we review the last year of films that we've done on Unspooled, our year off the AFI list. But what are you thinking? Where are you thinking right now? Right now, my gut is no. But okay. I do appreciate that Inception uh, had such a cultural impact that even a band that we have made fun of on this show wanted to say that they were smart because they also have seen Inception and can make a reference to it in song. And that is the Black Eyed Peas in Just Can't Get Enough. I just can't get enough. I just can't get enough. Honey got a sexy on steaming. She give my hotness a new meaning. Perfection, mommy, you gleaming. Inception, you got above a dreaming, dreaming. Damn, baby. I'm so, for their sake, they have made it immortal. Thank you, peas. What about so, you, though? Wait, are you a yes? Well, here's where I'm mixed. This conversation really helped me, like, kind of wrap my head around something really interesting. And, and I think we are always wrestling with the lack of IP on this list. Like, do we want to put something that is IP related? On this list. And, you know, if we can only take one from each director, and I know a lot of people have issues with that, but let's just try to, that's the premise of the show. I would probably take The Dark Knight. But, you know, that's a gut, that's a gut feeling. And I'm like, well, that would be the one I would pick. But then I'm like, is that really representative of what Christopher Nolan does? And there are many similarities to this as far as it making a larger uh, issue and there's metaphor. And, uh, and I think that he reinterprets Batman in a really interesting way. But is it better to have a, a movie that's completely original and and shows off, I think, a lot of the things that we know Christopher Nolan from? I mean, you know, as great as The Dark Knight is, I think that when you think about Christopher Nolan, you are thinking Inception. You are thinking about Memento. I mean, I love Insomnia, too, but um, there are a lot of different things that make a Nolan movie that are simply not present in The Dark Knight. Um that's so fair. I mean, you know, if I, and that's I, an, that's an yeah. argument, you know, and and I don't and I don't know. I don't, like I at this point, the I definitely want a Nolan on this list. I don't know which Nolan I want. So at this point, I'm going to just say it's a it's a shrug because if this is the only Nolan that we have done, if we die today, and this is the only one that we do then it's going on the list. We have not done The Dark Knight yet, so I can't speak to it. But uh, if this is where the list ends, it goes on, simply because of the scope of it um, and the difference of it. And it that's how I feel. That's how I feel right now in the moment. But, uh, you know, it could be swayed. I could I'm be swayed. open. I'm open. I mean, 
Nolan is not my favorite filmmaker, but I do feel like he is important enough that yes, Nolan can have a film on the list. Um, wow, my gut so nice, is so probably I know. Am I not the best? Really? Um, my gut is it for me. It might be down to The Dark Knight or Memento, but there. Mm. Now I am also thinking like there is an argument that this is the most Nolan, and if we are only doing one Nolan, maybe it is this film. Right. Or, like this is not my favorite of his films, but maybe this is the most representative Nolan. Peak Nolan. Yeah. I mean maybe maybe Peak Nolan is to come. But Right, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Well, we will see. I mean, there's a lot more to be there's more conversation to be had. There's a superhero miniseries that we have coming up. And you know, we can what I love about this show is that we can put things on, take things off. You know, we continually have a conversation about these uh these movies. Yeah, we put things on and take them off. We are the wet t-shirt contest of movie lists. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Well, Amy, talking about wet t-shirts, uh, their next movie, they would love to get in a wet t-shirt contest because there's simply no water. Uh, it's, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, they, they, they actually do have a wet t-shirt contest in this film. It's just not sexy. It's, it's more dirty and uh, musty. Uh, and I'm, of course, talking about Mad Max Fury Road. The end of our summer blockbuster series uh, comes to a close with another banger. I mean, this has been one of the most fun uh, batches of films that we have done, uh, even with speed in the mix, um, for me. Uh, so... Uh, take a listen to the trailer. In this wasteland, I am the one who runs from both the living and the dead. A man reduced to a single instinct. Survive. And 
and Mad Max Fury Road is available wherever you get your movies streamed. And you can always go to your public library as well. Um, All right, Amy. See you next week. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group, that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right, go to tpublic.com slash stores slash Unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.